All right, everyone, welcome to this episode. Uh, it is the second time recording this because it's really early in the morning. I woke up an hour ago. I forget to press the record button on the first attempt. But uh, this is a new format uh, about really geeky track cycling stuff. I'm Paul, your usual co-host. You know me from the Slow Spin Side podcast. But today I am with someone totally new. Hello, David. Hey, Paul. How are you? I am doing great. I could be uh, doing even better if I haven't forgot to press the record button on the first try. But yeah, that's all right. We'll get through it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll get through it. Uh, yeah, new format. Exciting. Uh, I figured out that talking about really nerdy, track, geeky stuff on this Lisbon Sidey podcast was possible, but not that interesting since... Either Rob or Amanda are not really into that, but David here is really into track cycling stuff, uh, and I am really into nerdy uh, track cycling new technologies, so I guess we can have a good talk. Yeah, it's just a match made in heaven, isn't it? It is, it is. <laughs> uh, okay, first, David, could you quickly introduce yourself before we start uh into the into the fantastic world of track cycling technology yes yeah, so um my name's david as you already know some of you may know me as dave arino in the discord chat and i guess i'm the resident track racer track enthusiast i've been racing track for about a decade now essentially um raced it i've been lucky enough to race at a bunch of different velodromes mainly in australia and at a bunch of different levels I just consider myself more of an amateur than anything. I just do it on the side to you know, keep my mental health well and keep fit and healthy. All right. Uh, just so you know, David is at, even if he consider himself an amateur, he's at a way higher level than I will ever be uh, into track cycling. But, oh my God, this is amazing that we can talk about that kind of stuff. Let's ramp on into our first uh, discussion subject, which is uh, Filippo Ghana's hour record attempt and the fact that he broke uh, the 55.5 uh, made by Dan Begham in August this year. So it went another 1.2 kilometers more around the track. So he went for 56.7 and it was nice. I watched it live. I was actually at a, um, not a concert, like a comedy thing that night. Uh, and <laughs> I was watching the thing on silent mode on my phone uh, with like brightness at the minimum level because I didn't want anyone to think that I was filming the thing. And what an amazing performance. Philip Ogana is really an amazing athlete. Yeah, he's... He's a mutant. He's a monster. Yeah. There is a lot of stuff that, let's say, uh, helped him into his quest of uh, breaking the hour record this year. It's just incredible what he's done. So he's also unified the um, the Chris Boardman record on the Lotus Superbike in the Superman position, which was set in the 90s. I think it was like 56.3, something around that um, mark. Yeah. But obviously, it's not UCI equipment, so they been that record and just kept it as best human effort so he's unified the record which i was so excited for i've been looking forward to this moment for years now it's a historic moment 
Oh, it is. It, is, it really is. I didn't think we'd see it for another couple of years, but uh, yeah, it's just, it's a wonderful thing to see. Do you want to go on with uh, his equipment? Yeah, sure. So we've broken down Ganner's equipment, his bike, and also the environment that he performed the hour record in, because all of that is incredibly important. So we'll kick it off with his actual equipment. So he's an Ineos rider. Um, so sponsored by BioRacer and Cask. And so he was using um, BioRacer and Cask products because he sponsored and Ineos sponsored the attempt. They have to use that equipment. But it just helps that that equipment is bloody fast as well. So he was <laughs> repping a Cask Bambino Pro. So it's just one of their top-end aero helmets in a very large size. Um, if, you, if you watch any road racing you'll see that helmets are getting bigger and bigger and you would think that that is an aero disadvantage, but essentially that improves the airflow over the shoulders and the body. It's reducing those little nooks and crannies and little points where you may be causing yourself extra drag. Because having a bigger helmet will basically streamline the air transition between your head and your body. That's how we should look at it? Yeah, essentially. Okay. Yeah, it, it makes it... um. It, just think of it like this. It essentially makes your head part of your shoulders. Okay. And that jut we have where our necks join our shoulders aren't isn't very aerodynamic. Um, so having a helmet there to kind of join it together makes it more aero, essentially. It keeps the airflow going and it doesn't cause little breaks in airflow. His um, visor as well also had a little bit of tweaking done to it. So if anybody watched Tour de France stage one, that very wet short TT in Copenhagen, I think, um, all the riders there were wear using um, lip spoilers on the edges of their visor. Where I'm still not 100% sure what it does, but I believe it is to promote that airflow over the shoulders again. So getting, I guess, funneling it towards the shoulders and then over your back um, and all of this idea of funneling air over your shoulders comes from that Hock Temple helmet, which I think a lot of us will be familiar with, even if we're not into TT, because it is such an ugly helmet to look at. It got the it nickname is. of, yeah, the Stormtrooper helmet, I think it got, but <laughs> it has seen an absolute resurgence. So Pock actually stopped making it um, early, I think somewhere between 2015 and 2013, they stopped making it. Because no one bought it. <laughs> no one thought it was fast. It just looked horrible. But then Dan Bigham steps in and he's like, hey, this helmet is actually incredible if it suits your body shape and you can hold a good position. Um, so it's started up production again and a lot of people want it. And essentially what it does is the little lips it has on the side, it's, it covers your shoulders and it, again, promotes airflow over the shoulders instead of just hitting your head and then running into your shoulders and not flowing over nicely. And of course, the head being one of the biggest items and also one of the first things to hit the wind, the head affects everything behind the helmet too. So the skin suit, all that other stuff we're going to talk about has to work in tandem with it for it to be faster. Yeah. All right. Yeah, the helmet, when you look at uh, his face uh, after he like, gets up and like uh congrats himself like yeah i made it and you look at the size of the helmet compared to the size of his head and yeah it is massive yeah i mean if you want to look at a good comparison just go to like uh the olympic pursuit 
last year and compare mm-hmm. it to now. The helmet sizes have gone up. And oh, on, yeah. a guy, on a guy like Gunner, it's not too bad because he is a bigger dude, I guess, as far as pro cyclists go. But on really small GC guys like Adam Yates, like little 60, 55 kilo guys, it looks frankly ridiculous. But it is faster. Because Gunner is a big dude, right? He is, yeah. He's like 1.8 meters, and I think he hovers in the mid 70s for weight to 80s, which for a track cyclist, that's pretty standard but you got to remember he's also a road rider too and that's heavy for a roadie that is very very mm. heavy and then he's got to yeah. lug himself up all those mountains the same mountains that all the gc guys has to do and he has to do it with a lot more watts to match their speed obviously he's never with them but much harder on a big bloke like that yeah 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 so after the helmet is the skin suit and it is a bioracer katana, so again in the fa- in the same uh, Anos family. It was a full custom fit. You told me that uh, he went through like around three hundred hours of wind tunnel testing. Yeah, and it's been they've started had this project running for a year essentially. So yeah, there's a lot of time spent in wind tunnels to make sure just testing different combination of skin suits, materials, undershirts to make sure that everything is optimized to perfection. Mm, yeah, that's what I was saying before we restart this recording, <laughs> is when I look at uh, Ghana's attempt and some side pictures of him, uh, especially from the bottom of the track, you can see that, I don't know if it's his body or his suit, but it looks like there is a padding behind his shoulders, kind of streamlining the... Um, the transition between his helmet and his shoulders. But uh, padding in the skin suit isn't UCI approved, uh, but you told me it could as well have been the undershirt. Yes, so the UCI, I think it was when Team Sky was still a thing and when Chris Froome was riding for them, um, mm-hmm. they, Castelli introduced a skin suit for them with, back when they were sponsored by Castelli and it had all these little bumps and ridges around the... I believe, like the back of the arm, the um, elbow area, um, which was supposed to create vortexes, some fancy aerodynamic stuff. Um, but then you see I banned it very quickly. Um, and the exact code for that is 1.3.003. And it reads that modifications to surface roughness, aka little bumps and ridges of clothing are authorized, but may only be a result of threading, weaving, or assembling of the fabric surface rough roughness modifications shall be limited to a profile difference of one millimeter at most so if there are going to be bumps and ridges it must be in the production it must be yeah. by the way they connect the skin suit together so the stitching where the fabrics meet um, and if they are going to have bridges they must only be one millimeter um deep i guess so very very strict rule but um, Ineos and Dan Bigham and all those blokes um, know how to get around that. And essentially, that's with an undershirt. Right. So there isn't that much regulation about the undershirt. No, it's a very new, I guess, a new um, item. There's There's been talk about it for the last couple of years or so about its introduction, saying, should it be banned? Because it is essentially getting around that other UCI rule. Um, mm-hmm. And if you look at photos from the TT World Champ, the World Champs that were just in Australia, 
Tade Pagach is using him. Um, a lot of the juniors are now using him as well, and a lot of the Italian Castelli riders are using them too. And essentially, this undershirt allows you to have bumps and ridges, which are not where they would be connecting stitching and stuff. So it gets around that rule because it's not the skin suit, it's the undershirt doing it. And also, the specific skin suit and the specific undershirt were tested, and they were the ones that work the best together. A lot of testing, a lot of prototypes were done. Mm. So is that a thing that your undershirt is basically glued to your body, you know? It's like, it's not moving, but it allows you some friction between the actual undershirt and your suit. So there isn't that much, I would say, resistance when you move. And when mm. the suit is supposed to move with you, but it just glides over the undershirt? Yeah, essentially. So if you had a look um, in that live stream, you see him taking off his um, skin suit and putting on a normal jersey. You see yeah. that the under... It's not so much... It's, I guess you could call it more aero sleeves because when you look at it, it doesn't. It only covers the shoulders and the arms and it mm -hmm. doesn't go any lower. Um, and there's essentially like... I think what that little bump you're looking at is... That may be the Velcro strap they use to connect the two of them, and it just happens that oh. it is more aero, essentially, because, yeah, it, he doesn't have to stick his head so far back to get the tail of his helmet to touch his back. But, yeah, yeah. it's – I guess, yeah, calling it an undershirt is a bit of a stretch. It's more of just aero, aero arm and shoulder covers. It's, it's a very new revelation, and I, I reckon we'll start seeing it more and more unless the UCI decides to um, – have their usual fun and get rid of it. Yep. Yep. And so going down onto the Aero shoe covers and the shoe themselves, again, using BioRacer product uh, and BioRacer shoe covers uh, that was designed along his skin suits, so same, same number of hours of uh, wind tunnel testing and everything. I have no idea what material it could be, though. Yeah, I think it would just be, I have a pair of overshoes and they're usually just like a lycra as well. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, yeah, and in his case, I think they're called BioRacer Epics or something, but yeah, they're designed to work with the skin suit as well. So again, they didn't leave anything to chance with this hour attempt. Yeah. And then the shoes. And yes. not, not like a surprising choice, you would say. I yeah I was very surprised because um he's just using a pair of Northwave Extreme road shoes I think they're called and they are they're top of the line Northwave shoes like they're excellent shoes but I have friends who have these shoes they're nothing incredible they got two bulky boa like dials on top of them yes he does ha, does have the Aero shoe cover to um, I guess smooth the airflow but in these kind of expensive attempts you will see full custom carbon shoes. Even in the Tour de France and TT races and stuff, there's blokes who are whipping out 2,000 euro custom carbon shoes and stuff, and they yeah. have the bowlers on the back. I've been lucky enough at Oceana's earlier this year to look at um, like the whole Australian team, like Glatzer and Richardson. They all have custom carbon shoes where the bowler is actually underneath, so it's hidden from um, the oh, air. Oh, wow. Yeah, and oh, these shoes are insane, man. So, you know, like with track straps, they go around the pedals and then you slide your foot into it. Uh-huh. In this case, the straps are built in just behind the cleat and the strap actually straps onto a little bracket that's um, that's hooked onto the back of the pedal. 
so there's no strap over the top of the shoe again making it more aero oh wow okay yeah it that's why i was so shocked about this choice because i'm like they it's ineos they have enough money to <laughs> ineos bought the most expensive yeah. cycling team in the world you'd think why not just give him a pair of custom carbon shoes but i think it may be a comfort thing because he does ride oh, 10 oh, does ride so much i mean yeah when you're riding alone for an entire hour you might as well have some sum of comfort to just keep you going through because an hour it's like it's an hour of pain honestly it's yes. nothing else than that so i couldn't imagine being not being comfy in my shoes when i need to put down so many watts and like so precisely yeah and i'd, I'd think that from all the testing they've done they've picked up that their aero shoes are good enough that they pretty much doesn't matter what shoes underneath it they're all going to be the same so they would have tested yeah. this they wouldn't have just been like oh shit we've forgotten to do them custom carbon shoes they would have checked this and it all would have checked out and they'd be like yep you can use those they're his um shoe of choice all right uh we can go on to the really really interesting bit yes. of today Excited. uh so the bike itself and before just before we go on to the frame and everything and all the amazing things that uh constitutes its frame we're just gonna go a little bit quick over the parts uh and first the drivetrain yeah so we're gonna tease you a bit we're gonna build up to the um exactly <laughs> but then again everything on this bike is cutting edge everything is so so exciting well to us two to read about but yeah i yeah. guess I'll, I'll get straight into we'll look at the, the drivetrain first so he was using brand new um watch shop kratos aero cranks so watch shop is dan bigham's um shop that he runs and designs products for it's just about being as aero as possible and if you haven't already i would strongly recommend you look at photos of these cranks they are so incredibly thin like they are like i don't know how you describe it like a like a cd case like thinner than that it they're like a nice edge essentially um and they also have an incredibly low q factor so the actual width from the um from the end of the crank arm to the other crank arm that width they measure across is 134 mils so that is we'll compare it to um components that we actually know so the Sagino 75s are 145 and the Jurace mm -hmm. 7710s are 136 doesn't sound like much but at that speed it, it would be, make a difference and the the minimum chainring size yeah minimum chainring size you don't see this too often yeah minimum yeah. chainring size is a 58 for all those out there <laughs> yeah and yeah. Uh, and so those are aluminum cranks and you can yes. see if you go onto his website and I'll put a link into the show notes. Um, so the watch up Kratos, uh, it has like some little inserts kind of, uh, into the pedal threading area and you can actually adjust them from, uh, 160 to 175. Uh, uh, Ghana went with 170, yes, which is like okay i understand but also kind of surprising knowing that he has like a really really big in uh, in, in stream longer legs basically yeah 
Uh, but one thing that surprised me the most about this crank is looking at it from the front, you're like, okay, yeah, it must be like a full custom job, um, chainring and all. It kind of is, but isn't at the same time. It's still, it is still a 144 BCD track crank. Yes, I think that, um, well, I think that 144 BCD is one just to make it commercially viable because Dan Bigham and his team have sunk a lot of time into designing these. They want to sell them. They want to make money on them. And also, I guess 144 BCD, it's just, um, from what I've heard, it is one of the best for stiffness overall. And when you're using chain rings that size, the chance for flex goes up because you've got more material and you just got, I guess, more leverage at the end of the teeth. There's a bigger distance from the bolting point to the teeth. Um, yeah, it, they are, you can buy them if you want to. <laughs> Anyone in the um, Discord wants to go buy a set and show, yeah. them, show us how they look. Um, yeah, but that whole adjustable bit as well, That's I think I've seen that on the Look Zens. I think they're adjustable, are they not? Maybe not? They are, they are. They are, yes. Yeah, so I think it'd be a similar system to that. But yeah, I think the 170, when you're time trialing, you're looking for, it's not uncommon for guys to run shorter cranks than usual. Um, yeah. Because on a road bike, you can control your cadence. So you just kind of go for something a bit longer. And usually a longer, cr a shorter crank technically allows you to produce more watts, but it can become less efficient when pedaling for longer periods too. So again, it's just like a whole balancing act. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for anyone, anyone that would be interested, uh, those cranks. So I don't know if that includes the chain ring because it said optional at the very end. But it is seven hundred and seventy quids, uh, British quids. So yeah, go ham on it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, it. Do, I believe it does come with a chain ring of your choice, but I don't know if you have to. I do think so from what I remember reading. But then again, that's a lot of money for a crank set. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, and I guess um, we'll move on to the chain that's connecting our chaining and cog together. So that is a, a, a fairly common name that most of us will know. It's an Izumi chain, but this specific one's a super toughness Kai. So these were developed for the Tokyo Olympics. So it's yeah. just like a super toughness, but on crack. It's just more efficient it's uh they don't put any anodizing on there which i believe is so it's because apparently anodizing to some people is slows you down it's less effective but i think that might just be a bit of rubbish but it's pretty much a naked chain they do something with the um pins and the the some fancy stuff inside the chain to make it more yeah, efficient yeah. but this one has the muck off ludicrous lube which is applied through a um high um ultrasonic cleaner thingy yep yeah i've seen and that yeah they had a good video of it on if you want to get more information on it and watch the one hour attempt Enios did a really good live stream of it and it's up on youtube for you to watch essentially they went through um 1420 chains for Ghana testing to see which ones work best with which chain rings and which cogs and it takes 25 hours of prep for one chain before Ganner actually puts down any power. Which is, just <laughs> pause a second, like 1,420 chains. Do yeah. 1,400 and like, okay, do 1,400 chains actually exist in of this of world? Like, model. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. 
it just shows you how much money Ineos has, really. Like, yeah. They can, because I think what they're trying to do there is, I remember with the Australian squad, what they used to do is they used to get the Mavic Comet discs and the IO fronts. They'd get them, mm-hmm. they'd say those bearings are rubbish, and they were still ceramic bearings. They'd rip them out, put in their own bearings, and then they'd do spin tests on them. So they take them up to 70K an hour, then stop it and see how long they spin for. And they noted the time of each set of wheels. And what they'd do is they'd save the best wheels for the record attempts and the gold medal write-offs, essentially. So this is in the same vein of that, is that they're just testing which chain is going to be the absolute perfect one for Ghana. But it's it's still, um it's it just sounds stupid, doesn't it? But I guess... When you're going for world records, they're ready to lay everything down. Yeah. And then onto the chain ring. So minimum size was 58, but uh, Philip Pagana went up there and used a 65. Yes, 65. Greatest carbon chain ring. Was, again, some special sauce to it uh, to reduce friction. And, of course, so this is the, the chain ring that... Uh, has been designed to fit the actual Kratos crank. Yep. Yeah. And it is only six millimeter thick. Yes, very, very thin. And um, if you have a look at it, when the chain meets the chain ring, it's pretty much, a, it's just smooth. There's like, usually with most chain rings, the chain will kind of bulge out and sit funny. But in this case, it just seems into it perfectly um, and I saw a lot of debate about what kind of chainring he was using. I saw mention of 64. Um, there was stuff in the chat about 66 and 67. And I, I spent about 45 minutes trying to find out which size <laughs> unit. But in the live stream, they did say he was using a 65 tooth. Um, again, it's a full, obviously, carbon chainring, special, special source, as we like to put it, added <laughs> to the actual chainring itself to make it yeah, more efficient. And that was mated to a Kratos 14-tooth cog. Um, again, made by Dan Bigham and his mates at uh, Watch Shop. And it's designed to fit, which we'll get into in a bit, the very special track wheels that he had to use. And interestingly, it wasn't a screw-on that we are most used to with cogs. It is more along the lines of the Mish cog setup. It's a Shimano Centerlock spine that the cog slides onto that's weird isn't it yeah it is but i guess when you're working with super special wheels and stuff um you're going to design a bunch of unique things to go with it i think that whole sliding ability gives Mm -hmm. them more area to adjust so the chain line is millimeter perfect i guess yeah i mean this the screw on cog thing i mentioned it into the slow spin society podcast before but it's kind of a love hate relationship like i love it because it works great but i hate it because it is a terrible design um the the screw on and then contour uh lockering setup like it's it's a pain man (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's just a pain my brother's got a training hub and he can't use one side of it because one time trying to build his bike quickly he just cross-threaded the whole hub so luckily he had two sides to it but i imagine if you yeah. got a hub with only one side and you cross-thread it yeah it's that's all over yeah you're done that's it so the cog itself was made out of a low alloy steel containing chromium and 
molybdenum. Yeah, uh, like I have no idea what it is. <laughs> and other other agents, but I wouldn't be surprised that even if it's still a steel cog, chromium isn't that strong or um durable i wouldn't be surprised if the kind of cog he used is something of a one shot you know yeah possibly could be use it and toss it i mean yeah they've got the money to do so i mean they've already gone through a thousand chains so what do they care about waste yeah just to give you a little bit of an idea, I'm still on the watch shop um, website and the cog, so assuming it's the same, uh, is 230 British quids. Um, and the size goes from 12 to 16. No more. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's insane. But you can buy like, a full set of Durace NJS cogs. Like a full set yeah. for that price. Okay, so it's made for Shimano Center Log Spline. Could we... Could we use it on, like, a front rod hub? I don't see why. I mean, is that Shimano Center Lock? Is that what they use for their discs, I imagine? Um, like, yeah, I'm, I was thinking about the disc. I think the cassette is something different. Uh, but... Yeah, it would. I mean, I don't know. It would be interesting. It would be yeah. a, an expensive experiment, but it would be interesting nevertheless. Yeah. All right, and I guess one the important big number we haven't said yet is what inch that comes out to. So that's a sixty-five tooth front and a fourteen tooth rear. That's a hundred and twenty-five point four inch gear, and I think I've done this right. A four point six four ratio is that. Uh, I can I can calculate to you right now, but it should it's I mean it sounds fine to me. Sixty five fourteen. Let's see it. Yeah, four point yes. six four. Yes, so that is a monster gear. That is even for track races. That's a that's a meaty gear. You're not messing around if you're pushing a one twenty five. Um, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, he does need it though. He's doing fifty, close to fifty-seven, fifty-eight k's an hour in some laps. Yeah. You need a gear that big to not spin your legs out and send your heart rate through the roof. Do you think in like the following years after this attempt, if you need to go faster, aero is a thing for sure. But to some extent, you'll need to up the game and go for a bigger gear ratio. Yeah. Do you think people are just going to stay around that area, let's say like 4.6 to 4.7, and just improve on aero, etc., improve on the physique of the athletes, etc.? Or uh, will people just up the ratio? I think uh, it, it will depend on the rider, but the issue with upping the ratio continuously is that you drop your cadence um, considerably, and that you kind of fall out of that pedal efficiency RPM. I don't know the exact numbers, but in that 90s range, mid-90s is yeah. where most riders are at their peak for efficiency. Um, I wouldn't, I think with other, if say like a Remco Evenepoel goes for an hour record attempt, because he's a smaller guy, he is more aero. I think he'd be around the same range because in the end you do need, uh, it's it's a, the whole, like a triangle, you you aero your watts and then your gearing it's all going to depend on a lot of things but i don't think we'll see anything 
majorly bigger. It is the biggest gear to date that someone has attempted an out record on, but I don't think it will go up that much more. Maybe mm. one thirty, possibly, but. I guess we'll just have to see if some monster comes over in the next 10 years to try and smash it. All right. You want to go on to the, the big piece? Yes, the excite <laughs> the frame. So we have a Pinarello. Is it a Bolide? Is that how you pronounce it? Bolide, Bolide. Uh, if you, if, I mean, Bolide for English way, Bolide for the Italian way, I guess. Yeah, it's Italian because it's an Italian bike. The Bolide <laughs> F hr3d it's a bit of a mouthful but it is the first high-end fully 3d printed frame um so we've all we've got a couple people in the chat who use 3d printers for smaller items and stuff like that yep. but this is a full frame and it's made of what is called scal malloy which is a scandium aluminium magnesium alloy very very fancy stuff um we very... have seen this before. It has been used in a fancy stem, I think, made by Vision, if I'm correct. Someone sent okay. it to the chat a couple of weeks ago, um, and it's a very fancy-looking stem. It's got, like, lots of cutouts, and it's just showing that, hey, this – it's just like a test saying, hey, look look what we can do with this metal. Um, it's also been reinforced with titanium. Um, the exact titanium is TI-6A i4v whatever that means it's just a certain grade of titanium i believe and this reinforces the fork head and handlebar extensions um, and it is applied using an electron beam melting printer again i tried to search it up but it's probably just above my pay grade to understand what it means no doubt there will be some people out there who do it's actually not that complex is it not uh, yeah, please explain it to me because i'm a bit lost when it comes to this section Okay, I got I got the info out of a Porsche video because uh, okay. Porsche is also uh, AI designing and 3D printing some uh, engine parts right now, uh, just testing a bunch of stuff. But basically, you have a thin layer of that alloy powder on the bottom of your 3D printer, and then you have a high beam slash laser that will melt that like parts of that really thin layer of powder make making it solid and then you rinse and repeat so the layers goes up by probably like i don't know it's not even a half a millimeter it's way even thinner than that uh but it's really really thin layers and so you go like this, layer by layer. So you create a new layer of powder, you melt it, exact area that you want, and then you go on to another layer. And okay. you end up having like your complete part, right? Wow. But the thing that like I found it completely amazing and kind of dumb at the same time, but it is, it is 100% metal bike yeah it's we've gone away from the fiber it's just the circle yeah. of life isn't it we've gone back to the old ways it looks like a carbon fiber bike and yeah. if you take a glance at it you're like oh yeah it can only be a carbon fiber because how would you make those kind of shapes that we're going to talk about later was uh was like metal and you just we you just would believe that it's not possible 
but it is a fully metal bike. Yeah. And something that is really, really interesting with that 3D printing stuff is you could make some part of this uh, frame empty, like completely empty. You could just print the sidewalls or you could put like a various people that are into 3D printing know what I'm talking about, but a various percentage of uh, fill-in. So you could say that I want a honeycomb inside that part. So it will be, let's say like, I don't know, like 10% metal and 90% air. Okay. So you can play with intern resistance of some precise parts of your frame. Yeah, so you could like you could essentially add stiffness where you want to, like adding more exactly. layers of carbon and resin and stuff. Yeah. The dumb thing that I completely don't not understand is they painted it black. Yeah, I mean, when you looked at Bigham's prototype, I could I would have put ten thousand bucks saying it was full carbon, but yeah, it's a yeah they just painted it black. And you look at photos when it's in pre-production, it's like this wonderful silvery color, like. They yeah. should have clear-coded it and called it a day, and it would have been just incredible. Like, for some reason, uh, I was making research, and I found, like, pictures of Ghana trying out the bike without any paint on it, on the track, <laughs> and all of that material has disappeared from the internet. Okay. So if anyone has a saved picture of that, uh, uh, I'll be, I'd, lo- I'd love to have it, because it's gone. It is gone. I reckon you could find a screen grab from that live stream because I do recall seeing that. I reckon you mm-hmm. could find a screen because you do see the frame all raw naked and put together, but I reckon if you watch the stream, you may be able to find a screen grab of it. But, yeah, that's interesting. I did need someone to explain that to me because, yeah, that's just – it sounds simple when you speak of it, but when I was trying to read about it, it yeah, it just went over my head. So <laughs> this frame is it's five separate sections which are individually printed then bonded together using like an aero something epoxy so just glued together assembly in in layman terms and the shaping of it which we'll talk about now this is what i think is very very cool it obviously has all your usual very deep section areas with trunctuated aero shapes so essentially aero um, foils with the tails cut off Um, And also it is an incredibly narrow frame, which I I find, which I love at the moment about the arms race for track racing bikes is that you have people going down both routes. You have Lotus Hope doing the Great Britain bike, which has the wider fork stance and rear, um, rear triangle stance too. And even that Canyon that they just released for world champs has a slightly wider rear triangle on it as well. Um, but Pinarello, they did say that if, as a frame overall, if you do use the wider forks, there is more drag on the frame. But there is a possibility that it may reduce drag on the rider. But from what they found, they didn't see it reducing it enough to consider chasing it. Um, what else do we have? Um, it is custom built to suit Ganner and his exact position. Because it's 3D printed, they could go to... a. I guess, accuracy that they said you couldn't do with carbon fiber. And I guess one of the more peculiar bits of Ganner's bike is that it has these little ridges or bumps that run up the seat post and then down the seat tube. 
Um, I suggest you have a photo of it. People have compared it to a cheese grater, and I have to kind of agree with them. Yeah. It's just these little bumps that run down that length of tubing. So what this is for, or what I could understand, is that because in that area you have the legs moving at 95 RPM, it's it's a lot of disruption to the airflow. Mm-hmm. So these little ridges, which are called sinusoidal hydrofoils, um, they came <laughs> from humpback whales. So there was an Australian university who actually researched whales and said, how can whales, like humpback whales, turn so quickly? Or how can they launch themselves out of the water and do these spectacular moves? And apparently these ridges are partly responsible for it. So essentially it's just trying to prevent the breakup of airflow between Ganna's legs and the frame. It's trying to keep to prevent that separation. Interesting enough, Australia did it first. I want to point this out. Australia did it first. <laughs> Matthew Glazer at the 2016 Rio Games on his, I believe, a BT Ultra had a ribbed seat post on his BT, which I did not know until I completed the research. I've put, because uh, it's a very interesting thing that it's a technology that's been around for six years. Um, and it was, wasn't really, there's one article about it when Glazer was using it. Um, but then. Yeah. It happens now, and it's spoken about a lot more. I just, I, I didn't even know, and I love glates, or I love Australian track cycling, and I was none the wiser. <laughs> there is also the fact that the new UCI regulation about the three to one ratio kind of eased a lot of those yeah. new design. So, just to give you a quick explanation for your listeners uh, about the three to one ratio. When you have that drop shape, so just imagine like a drop of water, right? Which is known as the most aerodynamic shape ever. If it's wide by one, the lens shouldn't be more than three times how wide it is. Probably not saying that the easiest way, but basically it is what it is. And UCI just went on and said, yep, nope, cancel that. We don't need that anymore. So we end up with new shapes and bikes that are way more aero. And the bolide for Ghana's hour record attempt looks great. And you can see that there are some aero, like really, really deep aero parts. But I find it way more visible on the new Canyon bike. Yes, that's got really sharp edges. Yeah, that's, it is very evident on that new, yeah, that new bike. But we can go on to one of the final pieces, which are the handlebars. And of course, it's the new norm right now. They are custom 3D printed base bar and and extension, sorry. Yeah, they are just perfectly suited for him, uh, like to the the thumb. It's like his extension and nobody else could use it, basically. And also, they have a kinked extension that provides drag reduction. You would say the entirety of his body? Yes. Yeah, so like Pinarello were one of the first to admit that this this new bar, it's not it is new to this year, but it's been floating around um at World Tour races on their their road TT bike. So essentially it has like a little elbow kink where it comes out of the base bar, out of the bull horns. Um, and it's supposed to reduce drag around the rider's arm. So they admit that it is not the most aero bars they've ever produced. However, 
um, they do provide a drag reduction for the actual body of the rider. And let's face it, the actual body of the rider, it makes up, takes up a lot more space than what these little handlebars do. Yeah. And it's interesting to see cycling going down this route where we're looking at, hey, even though these this frame or this bar design isn't the most aero, it allows our riders to get into more aero positions, which makes sense when you think about it that way. But yeah, it's funny that they straight out admit that, hey, these aren't the most aero bars you can go buy, yeah. but they do provide a aerodynamic advantage for Gamma. Again, it's all about balance. Yes, it is. Yeah. Such, I keep saying this, but it's such a beautiful thing to watch science and what's come together. Yeah. Uh, talking about what's uh, onto the wheels then. And those are, how do you pronounce that? Because it's a quite a new brand and I have no idea how to pronounce it. Yes, yeah, so it's, uh, I pronounce it um, Princeton Carbon Works. Yeah. And they're um, Ineos, they're sponsored, um, sorry, they sponsor Ineos. So if you watch any world tour racing, you'll probably see a bunch of Ineos riders getting around on their road wheels. They're a pretty small company out of England, I believe. Um, but yeah, they are at the moment the hottest thing when it comes to road wheels there because they're winning so much stuff with them. They look really nice. And if you sponsor Ineos and provide equipment to Ineos, you must know what you're doing. Um, and if you get a chance, again, please have a look at Ganna's Hour Record photos of it. These wheels are very beautiful too. Like they've done an incredible job at designing these. Yeah. But I guess we'll get into the actual wheels themselves. What makes them so special is they are narrow. And when I say narrow, that they are incredibly narrow. At the hub, it is just 69 millimeters wide, the front hub. So 6.9 centimeters wide. On a normal track bike, we're used to 100 mil. So it's shaving off three centimeters right there. And then at the back, same thing. It's from 120 down to 89. So again, shaving off around three centimeters. So these wheels were purpose built for this frame. The gap between the hub casing and the front fork is only two millimeters. It's so, so narrow. Everything has been done for a reason on this bike. And I guess the final thing for the wheels is, again, a shock choice for me is the tires. They're using 23-millimeter Continental GP5000 TTs. So a lot of us have probably heard of the GP5000 name. I've used them before. Mm -hmm. I'd say a lot of people in the chat have used them before. Um, have you used them before, Paul? I did. I did. Yeah. Uh, and they're good tires, but... I wouldn't be able to tell you the difference between the 4000 and the 5000 series. No, I, I couldn't tell you either, but they're, they are the TT versions. I think all it really is is they've got a little bit less puncture protection, which you obviously don't need any puncture protection riding on boards. Um, but the pressure he was running, we don't know. Bigham did hint on another podcast that it's lower than 15 bar, but that doesn't really provide us with much. That's a lot of PSI. I don't know the exact number, but that is a fair bit um and supposedly um i don't know how true this is it's just what i've read and what i've heard about that the actual tread pattern on the gp5000s provides a aero benefit over a complete slick because they do they are almost slick they do have those slight ridges that run along the sides and one very interesting thing that i found out is that surprisingly the gp5000 tread pattern provides an aero benefit 
Um, so if those who have used them, you know they have those weird little shapes on the sidewall of the tire. Supposedly they provide an aero benefit, which I didn't know that. I I thought they were just there for looks, but I guess it makes sense because you've got the complete slick tire in the middle and then on the edges where he's not going to be riding, I could see that providing something, but I don't know how much that would provide. There is probably some science between like dire directing the turbulent air around the tire rather than have it, uh, you know, like flow it around with a normal slick. If you yeah. can direct it where you want, you can probably make something efficient with it. I don't, I don't really know, but yeah, it's probably something I like that. I heard people talking about like leading edges and tripping points for wind. So I, I take it, yeah, it's disrupting the airflow around the edge of the tire and must be doing something to the rest of the rider. Yeah. Uh, I guess yeah, that's that's all of it for the equipment, isn't it? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll just take a note on lower than 15 bars. And I mean, it's still a massive tire pressure. Yes, there's still a lot of pressure. But he was tubeless, right? Yes, I think they were tubeless. That's one thing I couldn't find personally, but... Yeah, they weren't your standard tubular glue-on things because yeah. apparently um, that's a bit – it is old-school tech. It's been around forever, but it's no longer the fastest um, form for tires. Yeah. I mean, it's still what's being used at World Champs and stuff this week, but, yeah, reportedly not as fast anymore. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Maybe next year everyone will be rocking up with tubeless setups. Yeah. Pissing white fluid all over the track when they get a puncture i'm just i'm just waiting 20 years when they'll have like no air tires and we'll just be like one piece of composite rubber of some sort <laughs> this really crappy i mean i think you can get them on kid bikes but they're, yeah. they're shocking <laughs> uh all right and then like uh i find a final quick bit uh is the environment that kind of wrote in uh, so first was his warm-up and he did warm up and plot twist a cooling chamber. Yeah, sounds funny. Warm up in a cooling chamber. Yeah, and so like it's full of fans and air conditioning units with an average ambient temperature of 14 to 15 degrees Celsius. Apparently, it will allow your muscles to fire, but keep your body temperature down to prevent overheat. Yeah, they they spoke a lot about overheating. If you listen to that Ineos live stream, it's probably what they talk about 80% of the time is that overheating is your biggest enemy as a cyclist apart from wind resistance because as soon as your body temperature tips over a certain level, um, everything goes wrong essentially. You, everything hurts more. You can't produce as many watts. You can't hold an aero position and it all goes down the drain. So the whole thing about warming up, yeah, in that, cooling chamber is to make sure his core temperature stays low enough before he gets out onto the track and starts heating up because the actual velodrome itself i think is it grenchen is that how you pronounce it yeah grenchen, yeah yeah grenchen so it's only 450 meters above sea level um so there's not there is a slight wind uh, i guess sorry air density gain but not much it's made of siberian spruce wood we have seen a lot of successful and unsuccessful hour record attempts there but they actually artificially heated the air inside the velodrome 
So they heated it up a little bit because that oh. lowers your air density. Yeah, so that's why they were heat, warming him up in a cooling chamber because they know he would heat up quite quickly once he's out there. So it's not it's not even like controlling the the rider and the bike and how the environment would affect both of them. It's now controlling the entire environment around them. Yeah. Yeah, um, they were talking about the, because, you know, each day there's going to be different atmospheric pressures and stuff. And apparently that day, it wasn't 100% ideal what they were mm -hmm. looking for, but they wait for a certain time in the day because um, they know the atmospheric pressure is going to be lower and they heat up the track. I think it was around 25 to 26 degrees from what I heard. So to me, that doesn't sound that hot, um, <laughs> but it's still going to be noticeable when you're riding around at 56, 57 K an hour. So essentially you've got that balance between the hot, the hot velodrome. So lower air density. Also it's kind of at altitude, but not mm -hmm. so high. So again, air density once more, but once you go higher up, you lose oxygen, which re reduces your Watts. Um, and then he's got to actually produce those Watts. So a lot of things have to go right and have to be balanced for him to break that record and he did yeah i mean 450 meters is ne negligible but yeah he did break it and uh again congrats to him yeah incredible what what a performance what a what a time to to live in yeah he essentially since world champs he holds the triple crown he holds the hour record the team pursuit record set at the Olympics, and now he broke Ashton Lambie's individual pursuit record. So I don't think a rider's ever done that before. No, it's pretty insane. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and we'll take uh, the time in another episode to talk about it. But that will be pretty much it for this episode, guys. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be interested to know if uh, you people are into that and all the technical stuff. Uh, in the meantime, David, it was amazing to have you on the show. I am excited to talk about the Track World Championship with you very, very soon. Excellent. So much exciting stuff to talk about. Absolutely. And in the meantime, we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Have a good one, guys. Thanks for listening.